Hello, everyone. You're listening to Policy Speaking, a podcast by the Public Policy Forum that focuses on the ripples, the waves, the tsunamis emanating from the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, what should be done about them? Today is a real treat for me. I'm joined by Peter Tritsakian, who, to my mind, is Canada's preeminent energy economist and energy historian. By day, Peter is the executive director of the ARC Energy Research Institute. He advises governments and industry, and he's also co-host of the ARC Energy Ideas podcast, a weekly program that explains the latest trends and news in Canadian energy and beyond. Oh yeah, he's also one of the of our PPF fellows uh, here at the Public Policy Forum, so we also get the wisdom uh, uh, that Peter uh, is willing to transmit, able to transmit. Now, by night, he's also an accomplished author, educator, and public speaker on issues vital to the future of energy. Peter's two best-selling books, A Thousand Barrels a Second and The End of Energy Obesity, provide insight into the dynamic world of energy transitions. The yin and yang, in some ways, of what he calls the forces of change and the forces of resistance. Now, I think he can safely say that Peter is Canada's most passionate energy file, this winter, he unveiled an extraordinary multimedia project of that name, Energy File, a kind of deconstructed business book full of vignettes, historical storytelling, discussion guides, and physical objects from his personal collection of everything energy. Uh, I had the uh, good fortune to be in Calgary for the launch of, uh, of one of the books uh, associated with this. Uh, and uh, its subtitle, I think, is important to us, Disruption, Denial, and Transition in the Energy Business. So, Peter, let's start with just welcoming you to Policy Speaking. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you, Ed. It's a delight to be with you, and thank you for the kind introduction. So, um, the subtitle of your recent book is Disruption, Denial, and Transition. You've been preparing everyone for world of energy change for a number of years now, but I don't think even you could have imagined it coming this quickly or this suddenly, could you? No, it's, uh, it's come, I think, as you said in your opening, more like a tsunami rather than a, a gentle wave. So we are in the thick, obviously, of a major, major event here in the world. And that event affects society at large. And because it affects society at large, it necessarily affects everything energy as well, because energy is so pervasive in our economy and daily lives. So uh, I think you've said it's sort of like having 30 years happen in 30 days. Um, what does that feel like that? How does that play out for the energy sector and particularly the uh, oil patch in Alberta? Yeah, the 30 years and 30 days. I mean, we were talking about 2050 and uh, decarbonization and change uh, and the catalyst to do so. We've also been talking extensively about, you know, the negative artifacts of such a transition, including things like unemployment and within traditional energy industries like oil and gas. Now we're seeing abrupt demand loss that we were expecting in 30 years from now, going from 100 million barrels a day down to 70 million barrels a day. <laughs> We've seen it in the last uh, couple of weeks. Now we don't expect 70 million barrels a day to remain at 70, it'll percolate back up. But it's pretty devastating to see the impact. And it's a, it's a script that is still playing out as we speak. So 
tell me a little bit about how it looks like uh, playing out. You know, how does it look for the smaller and medium-sized energy producers? How does it look uh, for the oil sand sector? How does it look for the attitudes and confidence in Alberta? Yeah, well, those are all good questions. And let's just sort of revisit for a minute what's happened. In the very early days of when the pandemic was breaking out, really the uh, focus was more on the simultaneous breakup of OPEC, uh, arguably an opportunistic breakup of uh, OPEC where the Saudis and the Russians basically said, okay, we're going to flood the market. So that kicked down the price of oil from the roughly $55, $60 range down to $40. Uh, and that in itself is a catastrophic enough event because, you know, much of the world's oil production, let alone Canada's, uh, starts to become unsustainable in terms of being able to maintain production and produce going forward. Of course, the Saudis and other low-cost producers can withstand that for some period of time. So that was the first shock. And then as the COVID-19 crisis started to take root in a really big way, first in China, then Europe, and now here. Uh, Now we're dealing with something far more serious than just a mere price war. We're dealing with a catastrophic demand drop. You know, we've seen the images of uh, empty freeways, people staying at home, nobody's flying, of course. So all of a sudden you have, uh, in a matter of a couple of weeks, a catastrophic demand loss. Uh, And, you know, that's not, a dramatic word. Um, When you have a demand loss such as this in such a short period of time, the pipelines literally back up. There's nowhere to store the finished petroleum products like gasoline. There's nowhere to store jet fuel. And so the refineries are forced to what's called turn down. So that's in process now as we record this uh, podcast. Uh, But when the refineries turn down, it means they also don't need the input. And so the oil starts to get turned away. Uh, And what we're seeing here in North America, and uh, especially in inland parts of North American oil production, is uh, differentials are widening. So the price of oil uh, inland actually goes to zero. And I wouldn't surprise me in the next few days we see the price actually go negative because just the refiners won't take it. Negative negative price is kind of an extraordinary concept. I mean, people have been trying to grapple with the idea of negative interest rates over, uh, you know, which we saw in Europe uh, after the Great Recession and and are beginning to to see elsewhere. But, you know, just so we could just draw this picture you're describing. So the Saudis and Russians flood the market with added supply. Then COVID-19 hits and demand uh, evaporates and goes from what you're saying about 100, uh, well, it was 101 million barrels a day, I think, and down to yeah. 70. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, both of those hit price. So you have both less demand and less price. But you're saying actually where people will pay others to take the oil off their hands? Well, notionally, I mean, it's just a, a screening price signal that tells producers shut in your production now. So effectively, an oil producer becomes an oil storage company where their reserves become storage. Uh, And this is what's happening in real time as we speak. Even this morning, I've heard uh, some of the marketing, oil marketing firms are no longer taking oil to feed the refineries. So the producers have nowhere to put it. They have to shut in. And that's damaging. It's damaging on a number of perspectives. And we don't really know what the ripple effects of this are on North America's 
energy system because you know oil is a system from the wellhead through the refinery to the gas pump into your vehicle uh, into the diesel truck that delivers your groceries I mean if everybody upstream uh, starts shutting in and uh, also as a consequence um, under threat of bankruptcy uh, then the whole system breaks down uh, this is akin to basically if you think of a metaphor of the food side of it uh, all the farmers going bankrupt and being uh, being pushed out of business so what happens when things start to return to normal uh, what is the damage done we don't really know yeah well i mean i i guess those are good metaphors i mean farmers who go through a drought uh you know uh plant again and come back it's uh it's not necessarily like the cod fishery was in 1992 where it just shut down and has never reopened since 1992 yeah but then again you have this cyclical problem on top of a structural issue that was already happening in the oil industry that as you say was going to dampen demand over the long term so what will the interaction of that look like the interaction of you mean ramping back up again you know, well, we're, we're ramping back up, but in the long term, with a a, a glide down because mm -hmm. of uh, you know because of new technologies, less uh, carbon intensive technologies coming on stream. Well, one of the things we don't really know is how we're going to come back. I mean, honestly, we're only three four weeks into this thing, and we know that when we have a crisis of this nature, society comes out looking differently how differently we will look when it comes to things like uh, airline travel, uh, whether or not we're gonna commute as much and all those sorts of things, we don't really know. Uh, you know, some things will gradually rebound back over the course of a year or two, like say, um, I'll just postulate commuting and vacation travel, uh, but things like business travel, I would argue you know, the, uh, the teleconferencing technologies are so good that I think you're gonna see substantially less so the system has to adjust to that reality. It necessarily will likely mean that oil consumption will structurally change, is unlikely to be growing by say a million barrels per day per year. You know, the 101 was gonna to go to 102 and then to 103, those are sort of the projections. Uh, now you're probably going to see a rebound. I don't know, I'm just gonna postulate 95 to 100 by when we come out of this. Uh, and then the global industry will have to contract or will have already contracted by virtue of the carnage being done in the oil fields uh, to adapt to that. And then, you know, as you know, we can get into a discussion uh, about economics, about, um, you know, which producers will survive and which won't. So how will Alberta do in that question of which producers will survive and which won't? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's certainly one we're all acutely aware of here in this province. But first of all, let me characterize Alberta Vice and actually Western Canada because British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan all produce oil in fairly significant quantity. Alberta is the dominant one. And uh, we can also talk about Newfoundland if you want separately yeah. because uh, they're having serious, serious issues as well as a major producer. Getting back to your question, how will Alberta fare? Well, you have to realize that Western Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil and gas in the world. So we are not a trivial producer by any stretch. The character of the industry is not homogeneous. It is very diverse. We have oil producers, traditional 
We have natural gas producers. We have oil sands producers. All of these are different modalities of extraction. All of them have different cost structures. All of them have good assets versus bad assets, wide spectrum. So how we will come out of this is, I believe, it will shrink to a certain degree. Uh, but you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, Alberta's finished. It's done. It's over. Um, that's not far from the truth. Um, the companies that will emerge from this will be larger. They'll have to, the industry will have to consolidate more to be cost competitive. And you're going to see a lot less companies, probably a lot more um, beefed up companies and, you know, frankly, a, a leaner and meaner set of companies because they will have uh, had to adapt to the harsher fiscal realities of uh, how we're going to come out of this. Well, first off, I think it's an important point to uh, uh, to dwell on what you said a few moments ago. You know, this is um, not an Alberta problem alone among the provinces in Canada. There are other oil and gas producing regions and in oil alone, uh, Saskatchewan is a major producer, as you say, Alberta and, and Newfoundland is suffering. Um, it's only, uh, you know, it, it, its own tragedy. I mean, just today, uh, Premier uh, Ball asked uh, of Newfoundland, asked the federal government to uh, for assistance because uh, because that province is uh, is mm -hmm. virtually bankrupt and it was in trouble already because of Muskrat Falls uh, energy project and other uh, other reasons. So yeah. it's a it, it's a national problem, really. It's a national problem on many dimensions. It's an uh, energy security issue. If we take the Newfoundland situation, you've got the from what I understand, the, the refineries have shut down. So you have this situation where they are running on their inventories. Uh, it would seem rather uh, perverse that they would actually have to import petroleum products at some point if this continues for any length of time because they are a significant oil producer. Um, you know, this metaphor can extend into North America. We've got uh, potential refineries dialing down significantly or dialing down to zero. This is a system-wide problem. And I think for people uh, in this country to say, oh, it's just an oil producer's problem, uh, it'd be very naive to say that because at the end of the day, uh, you know, we know that there was this long-term impetus to trans uh, transition off of fossil fuels, but we were we are nowhere near close to doing that. Today, we are still highly dependent as if the trucks that deliver all our vital supplies, including our food, to all sorts of products that are made from petroleum. And if the whole complex starts to fail, uh, then we've got big serious issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know this too will pass, but there's no question we're going to come out of this change. Uh, we're going to come out of this with many subsets of the system that are damaged permanently, probably. And therefore, the question arises, you know, is this a transition to the future or are we going to end up you know, picking up the pieces and putting Humpty Dumpty back together again before we can start a transition to the future we were looking for uh, only a month ago? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I suspect that they overlap uh... Uh, somewhat. Obviously, uh, 
the urgency of the present situation takes precedence for, uh, you know, for people who are losing their jobs immediately. This is no longer an orderly transition to no. a future. If it was ever orderly, this is about as disorderly as, uh, as one can imagine. And that must be, you know, very frightening for, uh, uh, for a lot of people, a lot of individuals. Yeah, it's very frightening. This was an issue that was arising when we were talking about decarbonization and the transition away from fossil fuels to uh, renewable and clean energy systems. Uh, the employment issue was always in the background. We were starting to talk about it in terms of what was called the just transition, right? You know, how do you justly treat people that have uh, been trained and worked their lives, or, you know, in some cases, their lifetimes in an industry like the oil business? How do you retrain or transition them? Um, this is all happening, as we said earlier. 30 days instead of 30 years. Well, let's let's focus in on the oil sands for a moment, which have become obviously a bete noir uh, to many people uh -huh. in Canada and elsewhere uh, in the world, and uh, uh, you know, investment funds that uh, that have wanted to steer clear of them because of the politics, which are rooted, of course, in uh, in an environmental footprint and a concern about uh, about climate change. So let let me ask you this. A lot of critics say that the oil sands just can't compete on cost or on carbon, that they're too expensive, they're too emissions intensive. Hmm. Um, is that right? Well, let's put the carbon aside for a minute and tackle the cost first, because there certainly are a lot of people out there, even before the crisis, that were saying uh, it's the highest cost producer in the world. If uh, we see low prices, they're going to be the first to shut down and so on and so forth. Um, so if we think about what the oil sands are, they are a, a completely different modality of extraction from the traditional oil and gas business. They are much more of a manufacturing operation. And so this new modality of oil extraction and delivery really started to grow in earnest about 20 years and has grown to be a significant fraction of North America's oil supply, if not the world, at around, uh, I don't know if the latest numbers are three and a half, four million barrels a day, 100 million, there you go, it's like three or 4%. So the manufacturing nature of the business lends itself well to learning curve effects and cost reductions. And so when the oil price crash of 2015-16 occurred, when we went from $100 a barrel down to 50 and momentarily even below that, the industry moved from uh, expansion mode to cost reduction and efficiency mode. And so actually a lot of the operating costs were driven much lower. And so the industry today is much better prepared to handle uh, this thing, the oil sand segment of the industry is much better able to handle it. And the other part of the oil sand that a lot of people don't realize is that the sustaining cost, the sustaining capital required to maintain flat production is quite low. In other words, it can keep producing for a long time without having to replenish the supply, without having to constantly drill for more. Yeah, so, um, yeah go ahead. Uh, I, I, so so let, let's let's pause there for a second because I think that's a, a very key point that people don't understand, and we'll come back to uh, the emissions question in a second. But even yeah, yeah we've got to do that. Even on uh, but on a cost question, once your capital is sunk, of course 
very expensive to uh, to develop uh, a, an oil sands project. But once your capital is sunk, it is fairly competitive on an operating basis because you know one thing that you don't have to do in Alberta that you have to do in Russia is your oil depletes quickly in let's say Russia or other places in the world, and then you've got to go out and explore and find new oil and develop new projects um, constantly. Here, once your capital's in the ground, you have a you know pretty decent fifty-year supply, don't you? That's right. Like you know, you don't have to replenish the depletion, as it's called in the industry, of the uh, of the underlying supply. So it just keeps producing. So it is very cost competitive. Where it is not cost competitive uh, is been because you have to transport it to get to market, and it's called upgrade the oil into the lighter crudes. So, but you know, on balance, if you look at the trends over the course of the last five years, the big oil sands operators moved away from uh, the, as you call it, the sunk cost construction, big capital expenditure paradigm into one of operational efficiency to actually be able to uh, compete better in a, in a much lower price, oil price world. Now, you know, today at these prices, yeah, the oil sands are going to have to shut it. And we're probably seeing it in real time. In part, not not the entire operations, uh, but then again, so is Texas, so is Oklahoma, so is Nigeria. I mean, it's it's all around the world. There's no oil company that can afford to sustain production at these prices for very long. So at five dollars or ten dollars or twenty dollars, uh, you can't sustain production. But let's say the best of the producers in Canada, what would be the lowest price at which they can? operate and sustain an operation well notionally it's around ten dollars you know but the, you know, that's that, that's the number you would hear quoted but it's really important to know that yeah you can keep the pumps pumping into the pipeline at ten dollars a barrel right but as your reservoir depletes then you have the problem where your volumes go down, so you're not making as much revenue, revenue volume times price. So your volumes go down, and therefore you generate less and less cash flow over time. Less and less cash flow means you can't drill to replace. And so it's a downward spiral for a conventional producer. But for an oil sands producer, uh, they can keep going because they don't have that depletion problem that uh, pretty much the rest of the world has. Okay, so let's say they're not in a bad position, relatively speaking, to the world. Everybody's in a bad mm -hmm. position, but on, on the cost side and on the competitiveness side. But on the carbon side, uh, it has been emissions intensive, and there's been a lot of talk. You were involved with the Generation Energy yeah. Task Force a couple of years ago. It set out four pathways to a future, and the fourth pathway was a cleaner oil pathway. Um, so is clean, and, and we've heard a lot of talk in recent years, well, in recent months maybe, about net zero by 2050 and commitments to net zero. Hmm. So is there, is there a pathway by which um, the oil sands can be uh, consistent with fighting carbon? Yes. I mean, they were on that pathway and they had really started to follow that pathway, I would say, 12 to 18 months prior to this crisis and gaining momentum. But I think that we have to understand in the nature of carbon intensity, like what, is the, what does that mean? 
and even terms like net zero. What does that mean? Okay, so you know, if carbon intensity is the amount of carbon that is required to produce a barrel, bring it out of the ground, whatever the modality may be. All right, so if you look at carbon intensity around the world, the different oil fields, uh, you have, and I'm just, you know, don't worry about these numbers in terms of exactly what they mean. It's the relative uh, magnitude of the numbers. So some of the lowest carbon numbers you see in places like uh, Saudi Arabia or the light, the light oil fields of Texas, and even some here up in Canada, you know, you're down at 20, 30 kilograms per barrel, okay? At the high end, you know, it's six times that. You know, you've got 180 kilograms per barrel in some parts of the world. And so 30 to 180 is a huge spectrum. The actual average in North America is about 60, 60. And so, you know, that's sort of the benchmark. Where are you relative to the U.S. average? Now we come to the oil sands. So, again, nothing is homogeneous. This is a huge industry. So you have all the stuff that was developed 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the legacy stuff. Now that stuff is still carbon intensive and is well above the average. But then there was a whole suite of new projects that were developed over the course of the last couple of years. And uh, they're at, and some suggest, uh, some of the companies suggest they're below the 60. So, you know, when you say it's the, the oil sands companies can't compete, um, well, it just depends. Are you talking about the old stuff? That's the legacy stuff. Are you talking about the new stuff? Are you talking about what they're going to do to drive more carbon out of the system? Where are they going to do it? I mean, these are, these are uh, you know, we've got to make sure we're talking apples to apples about this issue. Well, you know, we've had uh, conversations uh, uh, previously, Peter, and, uh, and you know, we've been involved uh, at the Public Policy Forum, and, and you've been involved with us in something called the um, Energy Future Forum, and we've had discussions about, okay, what would it take uh, mm -hmm. to realize that uh, vision in the Generation Energy Report of a cleaner mm -hmm. or even a clean uh, oil sector? And, right. you know, can we have that? You know, can we actually satisfy... Uh, the very um, uh, justifiable concerns that people have about climate change and satisfy the very justifiable concerns that people in oil producing regions have about their, uh, about their livelihood. Uh, and I think, you know, I think your view is that we can, but let's just, uh, let's just for a moment, what are the big picture things? You know, people talk about electrification, they talk about mm -hmm. hydrogen, maybe just mention two or three of the big picture things that it would take uh, to get there. Okay, so, you know, there's a number of technologies in the works that, let's just take again the oil sands. Uh, and by the way, the oil sands are uh, notionally about half of all of Western Canada's oil and gas production on, a, on barrels of oil equivalency basis. But let's just, let's just focus on them. That, you know, the objective and the goal that's set out by the government was net zero by 2050. So, to be able to reduce the emissions out of oil sands uh, by 2050, 30 years from now, I think many of them would tell you that, yeah, it's possible to do. In fact, we're on the path to do it. That's what, uh, and, and I believe they could do it with a number of the existing uh, technologies that were starting to be uh, starting to be implemented. But one of the big picture things we have to realize, and I'm going to come back to your question about, you know, the other type of things, the other technologies that are coming is that, 
the real emissions issue in the oil supply chain is on the consumption side, because only about 20% of the emissions uh, occur at the oil field level, 80% of the emissions occur downstream. So when we talk about net zero, and this is what I'm saying, it's sort of fuzzy what this, what this term means. Can the producers go net zero upstream in their own oil fields? And the answer to that question is yes. Can the whole oil supply chain, you know, all the way from extraction to burning it in your big SUV, uh, that's a whole separate question, right? Now, as a side note, the whole 30 years and 30 days thing, okay, we're seeing what it takes to cut emissions by 30% uh, here in real time in April. Basically, everybody has to stay home <laughs> and stop commuting. Uh, so momentarily, anyway, we're going to achieve our Paris Agreement. Uh, so, you know, the, the bigger question for the oil side is what are the technologies that will allow us to um, think of a pathway that reduces upstream, we're already on that pathway, but also downstream. And well, 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 that, well, when we get ahead. to... When we get to the downstream, and mm -hmm. let's just take transportation for a moment, electric cars or hydrogen-powered vehicles, uh, uh, yeah. what, whatever those may be, uh, presumably the cost of those will get better, and and the you know technologies uh, uh, will get better, range will get better, and people will move to that over time. I mean, at the moment, yeah. I think it's less than four percent of new car sales in Canada are electric. So people are still buying 96, 97% uh, internal yeah. combustion engines, and those cars last for about 15 years. So I guess we're gonna have oil for a while, we better clean it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's my view, you better clean it. And also, I think we need to get consumers to be more mindful about how they use it. Yeah. You know, like, and, uh, you know the, I, I offered you the range of carbon emissions, intensity, you know, 30 to say, close to 200, so that's a six to one dynamic range on the production side. Uh, the difference between buying a smaller vehicle and a big SUV is about four to one in terms of emissions per kilometer. So mm -hmm. is you know, how we choose, how we make choices on the things we buy that consume energy are equally important to the transition pathway going okay. forward. And whether it's internal combustion or electric or otherwise. Let's let's look at one other issue before uh, we go, a strategic issue for Canada. So um, almost all of our oil exports, you know, oil is a huge, huge export commodity for Canada. Um, almost all of it goes into a single market, uh, the United States. And, and that's caused, I think, a, you know, a strategic uh, challenge that we've seen for a long time, particularly as shale oil got developed in the United States. But, but you're talking also about uh, about uh, us being exposed to, you know, regionally within the United States. So maybe maybe you could just talk a little bit about about how we have ourselves if we do wrong footed in 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 the way we've approached uh, our oil exports strategically. Yeah, well, we've said certainly in our business a long time that being dependent upon one customer in any MBA textbook is not a good idea. And so we've been exposed to the United States as our sole customer for all of our exports. And it's a very meaningful amount. It's in a normal, like last year, it would have been about $120 billion 
of uh, export dollars, which was very meaningful to our trade deficit, all sorts of me economic metrics, not least of which is you know, the taxes and royalties that are generated off of that. Okay, so actually what we're finding now in the last few weeks is that it's not only one customer of the United States, it's one segment of the customer, which is the Midwestern refineries, where the impact of the coronavirus is, is the worst, where you have it from you know, New York, Philadelphia, all the way west to Chicago, Detroit. I mean, these are the big major refineries that take the bulk of Canada's oil. And, you know, everybody's staying at home and not flying, not commuting. So the refineries turn down. We now see the uh, negative effects of concentration risk constantly being concentrated on one customer base. So in this regard, you know, it's um, really important that we did diversify, you know, through TMX and we wanted all these other pipelines. Um, and actually in that regard, the, the Keystone XL announcement of a couple of days ago is rather important because it's a pipe that takes oil, more oil, more of the oil down to the US Gulf Coast. Uh, and at least in some small sense, diversifies within the one customer called the United States. Yeah, it's 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 interesting in a way that the uh, opposition is so much greater to pipelines within Canada, whether they're going to go east or west, than they are to pipelines that are going to go south. Uh, I, I don't really know exactly why that is, but it is. Yeah, I don't know why it is either, because the 500,000 barrels a day of Alberta oil flows through to the United States to the Midwest and then comes back up the border into Ontario and Quebec again. So it's transiting through a third country, which, you know, in, in times like this certainly makes me feel like, well, we are dependent now on a third party agent uh, for half of our country, it's oil supplies, right? And, and you know, I, I'm hopeful the situation is not gonna get worse, but we don't really know how people will behave in the event of uh, supply chain damage, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that um, as we come out the other side, as we, um, you know, cross this, uh, this valley, uh, uh, which is, you know, very deep at the moment, but, uh, but inevitably we will come out another side and you think perhaps not as at high a level, but, you know, but, but we will have, uh, we will have material bounce back that uh, the public probably still needs to be convinced, the political public in Canada uh, probably still needs to be convinced that, that the oil industry is taking climate change seriously, that emissions are going to go down, not continue uh, to go up in total, despite the uh, improvements of intensity. So that that's, you know, that doesn't seem to me going away as an issue. Investors have made it an issue as well. Right now, I think, yeah. you know, yeah. the investors are in, Oil are probably most concerned about companies not going bankrupt, and then they'll. But they will get back, I imagine, to uh, uh, to these existential issues as we've talked about them uh, in the country. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, it's not only the political establishment that's convincing; it's the people that need convincing. And so I, I appreciate that. And I think that when you have a situation like this, where you have. Uh, instant transition in 30 days to something we don't know where we're going to. It certainly should give us pause. Um, and more importantly, when it exposes our vulnerabilities, right? yeah. it should give us pause. And I think that there's no question in my mind that we need to be thinking about what our energy business 
and systems look like on the other side of the valley as it lifts with respect to climate change. We have a unique opportunity to start a pivot uh, because it necessarily there's going to be stimulus dollars in this area. Uh, but equally, I think that the climate change issue has to be paired with other issues like energy security, fiscal security, et cetera, et cetera, and taking more into our own hands as Canadians, the, uh, the oversight of, of our value. These, these are valuable systems to society. They're still vital and they're going to be vital for several decades to come. So we have to have a holistic view not only from a climate change perspective, but from many other dimensions. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I also, you know, agree with the, the you know, we had an important signal um, uh, on day 31 of these 30 days, we had the signal from the federal government of, uh, of hiking the carbon tax and not uh, postponing that in the midst of uh, the economic crisis that we're in. So I think that tells us a seriousness of intent that, uh, that, you know, the climate change issue, the carbon issue, the determination of the federal government to, uh, um, to do something about it and not just talk about doing something about it remains intact uh, despite everything. Yeah, it remains intact, but this is the here and now, right now, we're trying to get through what is truly an extraordinary crisis. So, you know, most people's minds, certainly if you're like me, is on... You know, protecting your family, making sure that everything's good at home, you know, and then we'll go up Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, to the bigger picture issues. I'm confident, optimistic, you know, this, this crisis will be over. Uh, I'm actually optimistic over sooner than most people think, but that's another conversation. Uh, but uh, it certainly has offered us some lessons that I don't think should be forgotten that need attention just as much as the climate change issue when it comes to our overall holistic thinking about energy strategy in this country. Okay, well, Peter, I'm going to um, uh, uh, recall and think about when we uh, are finished this discussion, which we're about to be, that, uh, that uh, people like me who are living here in Ontario uh, are uh, consuming 80% uh, of, or uh, producing 80% of the emissions, and that you uh, and uh, Alberta are producing 20%. So, I'll uh, I'll think about uh, I'll think about our behaviors uh, as well, and uh, and you know in the meantime, I mean there's there's uh, a lot of points that uh, that you've touched on today that are you know very uh, thoughtful, very insightful. I think uh, help everybody you know, weigh the immediate crisis and weigh the long-term challenges uh, or the medium-term challenges that we have. So uh, even at a dire moment like this, I'm, you know, it's always uh, such a pleasure to discuss energy issues with you. And I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Great. Okay. So that's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. Uh, I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum, and I want to thank our distribution partner, National News Watch. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking.